and our reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapters 2 and 3. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, is, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promised in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The word of the Lord. Um, we are in Seat Switch October. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's I asked people who are regulars at this church to consider changing seat locations on Sundays during the month. The main reason to do that is it does fit with our sermon series, but it's actually because it changes your perspective. Most people sit in the same seats every time or about the same area. It's almost like the old days when you had a pew that you actually had your name written on it or something. But what it does is it makes you, by switching seats, more aware of other people. You become aware of different people. And that's one of our goals, is to be attuned to people around us, that the church is God's people becoming the people that God has called us to be. So our sermon series um, is the you plural, ustedes, y'all, yins, yous, depending on your accent. And it's, what does it mean to be the people of God that he has called us to be? The Bible, primarily the New Testament, makes all these promises and callings, and it's not just about you personally. It's about you all, y'all. Yins, ustedes, and becoming the people God wants us to be. And so we're looking at the New Testament vision for the church, for us as Christ Church Vienna to live out the calling and the opportunity that God has for us. This morning, after we've spent several weeks in the Gospels and now we're turning to Paul, we're in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we get here in chapter three and two and three a high point of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And it's a high point of his vision of what God is doing in the world. 
In chapter 3 specifically, he talks about his own calling to the Gentiles. I'm going to reread what Katie just read for us in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 3 here as we begin. Paul writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. So this is his calling. Assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery, now listen to that word, was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is talking here about something, his own calling, but he actually goes on a tangent to talk about this thing, this mystery, the mystery of Christ. And mystery in the way that Paul is using it, and it's used in the New Testament, doesn't mean something you go and figure out, like you're a detective, Sherlock Holmes. It rather means something that God must reveal. So God has revealed something that is climactic and a high point, and it's called the mystery of Christ. In verse 6, we get it explicitly. Here is the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So, as a Christian who's heard these sort of gospel messages my whole life, I think I glossed over what's being said here in verse 6 and how transformative and radical it is and how much Paul wants you to really hear what he's saying here. Because this, if I said, what is Christianity about? A, A modern American sort of evangelical reading of that is, Jesus came so that you can go to heaven when you die. But Paul is saying here, the mystery of Christ The amazing thing that God is doing in this world is not so that you can go to heaven when you die. It's that the Gentiles are included. And he's like, I can't believe it. Even the Gentiles are included. They are fellow heirs. They are also members of the body. They are partakers in all of the promises. And Paul is hinting at this. This is the climax of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Gentiles are also included or that both Gentile and Jew are brought in together on the same basis. Now, why is this so big? Well, especially for Paul and for the first century Christians who were mostly Jewish, it's because of their story, their history, their identity as a culture, as a nation, as God's people. Carter read it in Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let me read some of what God says to his people, Israel. Now, Deuteronomy was written about the time when Israel, after having been pulled out of slavery in Egypt, they were delivered out of Egypt and then spent 40 years in the wilderness, and they're now on the edge of the promised land. And they go through a covenant renewal ceremony, like renewing your vows in your wedding. And this covenant renewal ceremony involves God reaffirming what he is doing and what he is calling them to do. And so we get it right here in chapter 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then jumping down to verse 11. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep you, will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. And verse 14, you shall be blessed above all peoples. 
So Israel's identity and the Jewish people's identity in that first century was that they had all of the promises of God, the covenant with Abraham, with Moses, with David. They had the commandments, the law of God. They had all that God wanted them to do and be as his unique people. And they had the temple in Jerusalem, which was the physical dwelling place of God in the world. They were chosen, they were obedient, they were loved by God. God dwelt with them uniquely, and they were special. So Paul is blown away that the Gentiles, who aren't any of these things, are included. And that's why, actually, he, sometimes in Paul's letters, he will get off on, um, on these tangents where he gets so excited. It's like he starts dumping all sorts of adjectives, one on top of the other. And it looks like he's just going off on some rabbit trail, but it's usually because he's really excited about something. And he is really excited about this, and we get this right here, is he talks about, I am the apostle to the Gentiles, here's the mystery of Christ, the Gentiles are included, and then he goes on to talk about his calling as an apostle to the Gentiles, and then he says a phrase, or a, a, a phrase that turns into a prayer, where he gets, gets on this tangent that he gets so excited about in verse 14 of chapter 3, for this reason, for this reason that the Gentiles are included, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family, Jew and Gentile, in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then he goes on to say, so that you may grasp how high and wide and deep is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. You're going to spend the rest of eternity, you're never going to get the depths of it, but I want you so much to understand how much God loves you. Every family is included. I want you to understand how high and wide and deep is the love of God for you in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, what's God up to? Well, this is what he's up to. Here's Paul's argument for how the Gentiles are included and why it's such a big deal. In verses 11 and 12, this is the beginning of that section that was read by Katie. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, skipping down, were separated from Christ, verse 12, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So based on all that Paul had known and the way that God was revealing himself in history, anybody who was not Jewish, the Gentiles, were separated from the Messiah Aliens from God's people, Israel, strangers to the covenants that God had made, without hope and without God. They were the ultimate outsiders, as far from the God who had come to create and redeem as possible. But, verse 13 says, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And then going on in verse 14, for he, Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down the, in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law, and I'm skipping, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and to peace to those who were near. 
So what Paul is getting at here is what Jesus has done is not just taken those who are far away from God, the pagan Gentiles, and brought them near, but he's also doing something else, and this is part of why he's really blown away and amazed. In verse 14, it says that he has made us both one, the far away and the near. The Jew and the Gentile are both one now. In verse 15, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, or one new person, or one new humanity in place of the two. God is doing something altogether different. It's not just Jewish people and, and Gentiles, and all of a sudden the Gentiles have to convert to Judaism and look like Jews. It's something altogether different. One new humanity. So a way to understand this is... Um, it goes back to the great city of Pittsburgh, okay? So the great city of Pittsburgh has lots of amazing things, but one of them is the confluence of three rivers. It is the Monongahela River, the Allegheny. They come together and form not the Monongahela, they form the Ohio River. It's a new river altogether, at least the way we think about it. So it breaks down a little bit in what God is doing here, but it's essentially, if you were to take it to really where it should be, it's almost like if one of those rivers was fresh water and the other salt water, but when they converged and became the Ohio, it all of a sudden was sweet water. Or, or better yet, fresh water, salt water, they converge and all of a sudden the Ohio River is actually wine. Something entirely different that makes no sense and is far better is being birthed here. One new humanity is being formed. That new humanity, of course, is the church. This is the mystery of Christ. The Gentiles are included. God is forming one new humanity. The plan for all of creation is actually the church. It's not so you can go to heaven. It's to form a people for himself. History ends how, we've talked about this, not just in Christ coming to restore all things, it ends in a wedding. It ends in a wedding between God in Christ and his bride, the church, the gathering of all peoples into one body as the bride. The consummation of God's eternal kingdom is to fill us with his love and fullness for all eternity. And this is why even if you have a great marriage, it is not the ultimate thing. It's meant to point you to the true marriage. And if you're single and never get married, it doesn't matter because ultimately we will be married in the way we were meant to be, in Christ, together as his bride. And the bride is one body, one being. In all of its diversity. And that's what Paul is getting at here too is that he's making us one who are so different on every level. And I think that's one of the things Paul wants to underscore here to the people in Ephesus and to us for sure, is that being in Christ, being in Christ renders all distinctions and differences no longer relevant when it comes to God. In the new people of God that, that God is creating in Jesus Christ, there's no line of demarcation based on any external or internal trait. Your ethnicity, your gender, your social class, being black or white, English-speaking, Espanol, it doesn't matter what nationality you are, Chilean, Korean, Jamaican, Canadian, even Texan, they can all get in. 
The ancient Near Eastern religions and even the religions in the time of uh, Paul's day, they were local and ethnic. They were bound up in the culture and language of a place. And that meant that if you wanted to join that particular god or cult, you had to become part of that culture, that language group, do the things, wear the things. But in the gospel, that's not the case. You don't stop being a Roman. You don't have to learn the Hebrew language or the Greek language or the language Jesus spoke, Aramaic. You can remain in your culture and ethnicity but with a new king and a new set of kingdom priorities. And that's why Christianity for hundreds of years has translated the Bible into the language of people groups. Because it recognizes you don't have to learn the Greek. You don't have to speak English. And it's why, as we talked about two weeks ago, there are so many beautiful, diverse expressions of the church around the world that it does not all look the same. What God is doing in Jesus and bringing peoples together into one body is incredibly radical. And it was radical in that first century, and it's actually radical today. We just don't grasp it because we are on the positive side of the influences of the church globally. But Ray Ortland, summing it up, said this, what exploded across the Mediterranean in the first centuries was not brilliant ideas, but a new kind of community a new experience of community. So when Paul is talking about the mystery of Christ, which seems to actually be a climactic point in this, in this epistle, in this letter, the mystery of Christ, the climax of redemptive history, is that God is forming one new humanity called the church, and the Gentiles are included. I think it's worth pressing into how that comes about because it has implications for how we live it out. So how did the two become one? What is Paul getting at here? Well, in verses 14 to 16, we saw some of this. I just read it a few minutes ago. It said in verse 14 that Christ broke down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, and that he abolished the law. Verse 16 then, reconciling us both to God through the cross of Jesus Christ. So I want you to see something here is what Jesus did in bringing the two together was a was breaking down the dividing wall of hostility. So what is the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile? The connection is actually the law, the law of Moses, the commandments. It needed to be broken down. Now, the hard thing with this is that the law is a good thing. The Bible is very clear. The New Testament is clear. The law was a good thing. The Old Testament law had a purpose, it was so that Israel, on one level, could live into the fullness of life that they were intended to live. If you follow the law, God's commands, you're actually living life as it was meant to be lived before the fall. God's not restricting you by saying, you may have sex with one person. He's blessing you. He's not saying, I'm going to hold you back by saying you can't lie or steal. He said, I want you to live life to the full. Do this. So he was inviting them to live life to the full. And by living out the commands, the law... They were going to reveal God to the world. This God is a holy God. And that was part of their main intention, was they were being chosen to reveal God to the world to bring the nations into the worship of this God who had created and saved them as well. 
But by the first century, the law was no longer fulfilling that purpose. The law had become a wall to keep pagans and Gentiles out, the bad people out, the irreligious out, idolaters out. And the Jewish people then were behind that wall of the commands as the ones who were holy, chosen, and superior. But the gospel comes in and says that keeping or having the law does not justify you or make you right with God. Only Christ does. So the Jewish person was not better or more in because they had the law or kept it. And the Gentile, who was a pagan, idolater, and immoral by commandment standards, very far from God, was not precluded from being brought near. The gospel renders something like the law impotent for getting you closer to God. And this is where I want to push in to see how we do the same thing. See, all of us have a law or something like the law was for Paul or for that first century Jewish person. There's something we look to as a source of our identity and worth and to demarcate us from other people. It's what we trust in for an identity, for our worth. It's what I look to to know that I am somebody. It's a functional savior. It's where you get your identity. Now, in the modern world, the modern West, we say you get your identity by looking inside yourself, finding who you think you are and being authentic to that. But any good sociologist, psychologist, anthropologist would tell you you don't actually look inside yourself and just try to live that out. You actually always live out your identity in relation to others. It's not just internal, it's always external. It's in relation to and in comparison to other people. That's how we understand and evaluate ourselves. And that's telling you this. Your identity, while you might think it's something you find inside of yourself, is always about comparison in the way that our natural heart is built. And the heart takes any good thing, like the law was for Paul, any gift, any ability, any talent, anything that makes you distinctive, even just being authentic to your true self. And we elevate that good thing to an absolute. And then we have to look down on others who don't have or do or value that same thing. So any of us who kind of go by our natural human heart, we'll take something, our nationality, our race, some achievement in your life, like your, your good grades, your career, You'll take a political cause or political party and elevate it to a moral level. Like the Old Testament was, the Old Testament law was for Paul. And when you elevate it to a moral level, you can't just disagree with somebody or say, oh, they're different. You actually evaluate them and say they're worse. I mean, that's right at the root of racism, isn't it? Racism is finding group identity in your skin color assigning moral value to your skin color and making it ultimate, the thing that really matters. And so if you're a white person with that view, black people aren't just different, they're inferior. 
Comparative identities, comparing to one another, in our modern world are also often achieved identities. Because most of us don't just deal with like skin color or language. We actually build our identity based on performance and achievement. Things that you do or have done that set you apart from other people. Our identity is often built on our performance and success in this world, like being hardworking. I'm really hardworking. Those people are living on handouts. I've made a lot of money. That makes me better. My kids are happy and successful. People with achieved identities are often incredibly insecure and need to find others to compare themselves to and look down on. The gospel, on the other hand, is not an achieved identity or a comparative identity. It is a received identity. It says that your worth, who you are, and your value are yours by grace in Jesus Christ. That's what that great phrasing in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. We are God's workmanship, God's masterpieces created for good works in Jesus Christ. Therefore, you Gentiles and us Jews become one. That's the masterpiece and workmanship. It's all by grace. The gospel then destroys our comparative natures. It destroys our, our tendency to evaluate ourselves in relation to other people. Am I as smart as she is? Am I as talented as he is? Oh, well, I'm more successful than that guy. My church is smaller than theirs. I didn't want a big one anyhow. But the gospel destroys this type of comparison and evaluation. It takes whatever's distinctive or a gift or achievement that's in your life and relativizes it. It makes it secondary. So think about that. The gospel says, I am first a Christian, first a child of God, first a beloved child of God, and secondly, an American. I am first a Christian. I am secondly a white man. I am first a Christian and secondly college educated. I am first a Christian and only secondly an amazing athlete. There's not laughing. It's secondary in my life. It's not that important. The gospel destroys comparison and evaluation and it equalizes. It humbles us and affirms us. In verse 17 and 18, we read of chapter 2. He, Christ, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you, those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Hear what that's saying right there. The Gentile, in Paul's view, is a pagan, immoral person who is far off. And the Jew is a moral and religious person who is near. Yet both need to be reconciled to God. That humbles both the Jew and the Gentile. And the gospel says both have access to God, the Father, through Jesus Christ, 
by grace. This is the good news we need to hear. I want to close looking at the final couple of verses here and have two things that I think are kind of the implications, two other ways of having implications of the mystery of Christ. The first is in verse 19, that the outsider becomes an insider because of Jesus Christ. Verse 19 says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the... Oh, sorry, just let me stop there. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So, Earlier, he had said that the Gentiles were strangers, aliens, without hope, far away, apart. But now, in Christ, you are fellow citizens of the same country. You are family in the same home. We are brothers and sisters. And this is regardless of how immoral or irreligious or far off you feel or how you measure up or compare to others. You're not lesser than in the community of God. The Gentile in Paul's day was the ultimate outsider, but in Christ it no longer matters. And this is good news for anybody who feels like an outsider, for those who are poor, who don't have power, for those wrestling with guilt and shame, In this room, if you're struggling with your identity, with addiction, with a breakdown in yourself and in relationships, if you don't feel like you belong here, wherever here is in your life, in Christ, you do belong. You do have a home. You do have a family. The outsider is an insider by grace. And the second is, there is more together than apart. In verse 20 to 22, we read, not only are we citizens of the same country, members of the same house or family, then it says in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What is God doing through Jesus Christ? Not only is he forming us into a new nation and into a new family, he's also constructing a building. But based on the description here, it's not just any building, it's a temple. Think about how radical that was for Paul to say. That God is building a temple between Jew and Gentile, and it's not a building. It's people as the stones. You have to remember the temple in the first century was the religious, cultural, political, and social center for first century Jews. We don't have an equivalent today. It's like every political building combined with every stadium, combined with like anything that that you could put together, it's like this is where it's all at. God was moving and present here for Israel. God dwelt with them uniquely in the temple in Jerusalem. 
If you wanted to meet God, you went to Jerusalem to the temple because that's where God dwelled. But Paul is saying the church, global, historic, and the church local, through Christ, God is building us into a new temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And we collectively, as his church, are a new, even more full dwelling place of God. It's as if the Holy Spirit is present in a unique and magnified way. This is the new temple. This is where God is moving in this world. This is where God is being revealed to the world. This is where you experience God. And so, you know, we talk about that, like people talk about wanting to have spiritual experiences, and even Christians who say, I just want to experience God. And I do believe, and it can testify to it in my own life, that you can experience God on your own through prayer, through the scripture, through listening to God, even just through your observations as God is working in your mind and in your heart. But if you want to experience God more and more and more, it's not necessarily go be by yourself more and more and more. It's be together with other Christians. The church gathered. And especially the more diverse. This is very countercultural to American Christians. Because what this is saying is if you want to experience God to the full, you can't do it by yourself. To be in relationship like Paul is talking about as a, with a temple is difficult and constraining. Think about it. We're, basically, the image is this. You and I are each stones in this building that is the temple. A stone it is cut and formed. That can be painful. And then it's shoved up against and on top of other stones. And it's cemented to them. And then they, they stand hundreds of feet high because they lean and trust on each other. The calling to a local church is a calling to actually commit somewhere and to get more deeply involved and to embrace and cement yourselves to others and especially those who are different, a different race or language or class, different interests, people you find difficult. God is putting us together to shape and form us into the temple. Do you want to experience more of God? The church is where and how God is revealing himself and his love to the world and to us more and more and more until we are united with him in eternity. Let's pray. God, our Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, grant us to be strengthened with power through your Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith and that we, being rooted and grounded in God's love for us, may have the strength to comprehend with all of the church what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ Jesus for us, to be filled with all the fullness of God. Amen.
to our content and all who feel